Uh, we're actually starting a brand new series today, which is going to last us all the way through Christmas. Um, and we're calling it How to Be Home. And basically, uh, what I want to go through in the next couple months is just the idea of home. We have a season coming upon us in which home can be a daunting thing. Um, we have Thanksgiving right around the bend. Uh, we have Christmas, we have holidays, we have family, we have people. Some of us don't have family, some of us don't have people. There's all of that tension and we have to hold it all. And the grand question in the midst of all of it is how do you feel at home in those spaces? Because I can guarantee you if you're like me, even if you're going home, maybe it's even to the home that you grew up in, the physical space that you grew up in, I think we can all agree that once you enter those doors, it no longer really feels like home anymore, right? It's different. There's something that's different, something has shifted, something has changed, you've changed, and so maybe that home looks drastically different than it did before. Uh, but the truth is we can be at home anywhere we are as long as we're at home with ourselves. And, and most of that has to do with how we belong. Um, lots of life is just figuring out how we fit in, how we belong. And so this morning, I'm gonna take us through um, a series of stories. Uh, we're gonna talk about kids, we're gonna talk about astronauts, we're gonna talk about building forts. Uh, we're going to talk about a religious uh, tradition of building forts. We're going to talk about um, a story of a bunch of demons and pigs. That'll be great. And then we're going to stop uh, around what it means to be a neighbor. So uh, before we launch in and do that, let me just pray for our time together this morning, and we'll get going. God, I, uh, I thank you so much for this morning and for the idea of home. I thank you that you create homes. Um, that you create belonging, that you create meaning um, wherever it is that we choose to see you, wherever it is we choose to uh, realize that you're already at work. Um, and may our eyes be open in these next couple months as we do encounter uh, either the hurts that the holidays bring or the joys that the holidays bring. Um, with the people that are around us, may we realize that we can truly be at home uh, if we can learn to be at home with ourselves. Amen. All right, so being at home is a whole lot easier when you are a little kid, right? When you're tiny and you're little, home is a juice box, <laughs> right? It's not hard. Like, you can create home uh, in a classroom. You can create home kind of wherever you go. You make friends a whole lot easier when you're a kid. Just, like, the simple, like, thing. You would never say this to a grown adult. Like, you want to be friends? Like, that would be a good, like, if someone said that to me in a public space, I'd be like, I need to leave now. Like, <laughs> you need to get out of my space, right? Do you want to be friends is such an odd question. When you're a kid, you're just playing on monkey bars, and you're like, hey, you want to be friends? And all of a sudden, that could be your best friend for life. My wife has had her same best friend since she was five years old. And now she's a kindergarten teacher, and she gets to see all of these relationships at the same age that she got her best friend. Her best friend is Ashley. And the way that they became friends was literally Ashley walked up to her and said, you're going to be my best friend now. And that's indicative of their relationship to this day. She's like that still. But like they are still best friends. But that bond happened just with that. There was no like, hey, do you like the same things that I like? Are we at the same convention? Are we going to the same concerts? Are we doing the same things? Do you vote the same way that I do? None of those questions come up when you're little. It's just sort of like, hey, who are you? Cool. Let's do this, right? You, you, you jump into relationship without needing any common ground because you create the common ground between you. There's so much less baggage that we bring into it. Because when we're younger, we realize a really, really elemental truth that's all over scripture that God is constantly trying to push in our face that we are simply wired for connection. When you are born, you are taken from your mother's womb into her arms, right? We are wired to be held. 
We are wired from the very, very get-go to be held and embraced in community. So from the very start of your life, you were never, ever, ever meant to be alone. You were meant to be cradled by something, by someone. That's why we still hug. Hugging comes from that elemental, that very base, that origin story thing where your, your parent, whatever, the nurse, whatever it was, took you and held you like this. We hold that in our memories and that's why we still hug as adults today. It goes back to the very beginning just to, as a way to check in, even subconsciously, that we're all supposed to be wired. We're all supposed to be connected. Connection is actually your birthright. It is a human right. Connection is a human right. There is a reason that solitary confinement is such a punishing thing, right? Because solitary, like being in complete solitude, forced solitude, where you are ripped from connection, is one of the most painful things a human being can experience. We are simply not designed to do things alone. We are designed to belong. We're designed to belong to a group. We're designed to belong to a larger group. And we've lost that as we get older. Home and not feeling like you belong and not feeling like you have a home is a uniquely adult problem. <laughs> Adults either cause it, right, to other kids or to other things, like we're the, we're the cause of the problem where that person does not have a home or does not feel like they belong, or we cause it to ourselves through baggage. Do you know the only two fears that you're actually born with? And this is a psychological truth. The only two fears that you're actually born with are the fear of falling down and the fear of loud noises. <laughs> Fear of falling down, fear of loud noises. All other fears in your life are learned fears. Learned fears. Some of you guys have heard me talk about this before, but it, uh, in the old circus days, uh, which were terrible times, and I'm glad that those are over, but basically the elephants, there's no way for a person to control an elephant, right? An elephant grows to be like several tons, it's enormous, it's huge. It could just mow us over like any time it wanted to, right? So, but humans are smart, and so what they figured out, especially the wicked ones that worked at the circus and the weird ones that worked at the circus, they figured out that if you can start the elephant from believing that it can't hurt you or that it can't do something from when it's really, really small, by the time it gets really, really big, it won't know the difference. So what they do it, to keep them in place is they would just put a little ankle bracelet around them, and then they would nail a stake into the ground, and when they're little, they can't get out of that stake, right? So they try and escape, and they couldn't, and they're just, they're little, they're little guys, so they couldn't do that. When they're big, they just pop that out like a toothpick in the ground, right? But because they learned that they couldn't get out, they would grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and you don't need a larger cage, you don't need a larger stake, you don't need a larger ankle bracelet. All you needed was the fear that had already been emplaced in them since they were little that they could not move. It's learned fear. It's something that they carried with them from a very young age because someone else put it in them. And a lot of our problems when it comes to belonging, a lot of our problems when it comes to not feeling at home, not feeling right in a space, have to do with the surroundings that we have dealt with in our life and, and honestly, the hurt and the fear that's been instilled in us from other things. It doesn't come from God and it doesn't come from your heart. It comes from other things that have hurt you all the way down from when you were little to when you are adult. So by the time you get to adulthood, we're carrying all of this baggage. And we learn to speak differently, and we learn to hide things, and we learn to uh, navigate this tricky world. And as we learn to navigate this tricky world, we begin to lose a lot of the honesty, a lot of the luster, a lot of the beauty that we had when we came into the world without fear. Because falling down in loud noises, guys, we can, we can handle those things, right? <laughs> 
like a lot of us are not in positions where we're going to fall down a lot, and a lot of us are not in positions where there are a lot of loud noises. Those things are the only two things that are real, right? From when you were a little kid. We lose something as we get older. Kids have a way of just like bringing honesty into a situation. Uh, my wife's a kindergarten teacher, like I said, and so uh, every year I go and I meet her kids and I'll play some guitar for them. I can spend a total of 15 minutes in there without getting sick, so I usually try and get out of there uh, as quickly as possible. But uh, I'll play some songs and then we'll meet. And one of my favorite students she's ever had, and this was about like five years ago, uh, was a kid by the name of Clayton. Um, and some of you work at that school, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Uh, but this child was like 56 at five. Like just one of those like kind of just, oh, hello sir. Like he just, he had this like, like very like quirky attitude and like awesome. I just, I loved him. I was absolutely obsessed with him. And I went into their class one day uh, and I played the songs and I'm meeting Clayton and Clayton's talking to me about sound equipment because he already had a sound company that he was trying to get off the ground at age five. And we're talking and, and Clayton's talking to me and, uh, and these kids come up and uh, like they, they tell me, they're like, Mr. Cobia. I say, yes. And they say, I bet you that you couldn't pick up Clayton. And, and I went, what? And they're like, I, we bet you you can't pick up Clayton. And I went, uh, well, I think I can, but I mean, that's up to Clayton. Clayton, what do you think? And he stared at me in the face and he said this, I'm not kidding, he said, Mr. Cobia, you're a married man. <laughs> Five years old, right? Five. Another example of this is we went to Israel with a family um, from the church here, actually, and Charlie uh, was one of the kids that we went with to Israel to baptize. Um, in, uh, in the Sea of Galilee, which was an amazing experience. And we'll actually talk about the Sea of Galilee a little bit later here. But uh, we went with uh, Cooper and Charlie. And Charlie and Cooper, we sit down for this like first meal that we're going to have there. And you guys know I wear hats all the time. I, I'm bald as an eagle under these hats. Uh, and so I took off my hat, as I do if we're like inside and we're eating. And Charlie just gasped aloud. <laughs> like, <gasps> and then I went, oh, no, here it comes. And she goes, you're bald? <laughs> Front of the whole table, everything, and then I was like, "Yes, yes, you can see that. That's what's happening." The rest of the trip, she would walk up to me and she'd kind of tap me on the shoulder. She's like, "I gotta tell you something." And we're like, "Okay." And then she'd whisper in my ear, "She'd be, you're bald." <laughs> I was like, "It's just, there's just brutal honesty that comes when we are children, when we are little, right? But as we get older, we begin to lose that honesty, that beauty, that that frankness, right? We begin to lose a lot of that because we learn these fears, right? Oh, I can't possibly say that." And it goes beyond just calling someone out for their male pattern baldness. It goes, it goes further and it goes to, oh, maybe I can't actually tell someone how deeply I care for them. Maybe I can't actually tell someone that I love them. Or that, man, maybe I can't actually as an adult say to someone, I think you might be my best friend. <laughs> how often does that happen in adulthood, right? We lose this stuff as we grow. We lose the ability to be at home with each other the older we get because of the fears and the things that build up in our lives. And that's something when Jesus was here, he was just constantly trying to knock down. He's just constantly trying to knock down social barriers and just be like, no, you don't get it. Intimacy, relationship, home, it's available to you 24-7, and I call it kingdom. Whenever Jesus would arrive, he'd say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think that's something we've missed so drastically. In almost every one of my sermons, I point this out, but it's so true. At hand does not mean somewhere else. At hand does not just mean it's up in the sky somewhere with a floating guy with a beard and a scepter and there's lightning bolts that are going to rain down. At hand means it's right in front of you 
it's in a hand and you can join that hand and you can be a part of it right here, right now. Heaven starts right here if we choose to see it, if we choose to let it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Home is at hand. Home is at hand. And whenever Jesus would describe this kingdom, he would describe it. Number one thing he would use to describe it is a banquet or a wedding or a party. It always had food involved. It always had drink involved. It always had others involved. And you always have a seat at that table in every one of those stories. Every one of them. This whole idea with this tribal system that in his day when he was coming in there, we think we're divided now, which guys, we got a real division problem in our country, in our world, period, right? But when he came, the division stuff was even more powerful. I mean, down to the fact that like, if you did something that was ritually impure, which could be as easy as like accidentally working on the Sabbath or oops, I touched a body and I didn't realize that my relative had passed away, but now that they have passed away and I accidentally touched them, I'm now ritually impure for seven years. <laughs> seven years, which meant you couldn't do anything in the temple until you atoned for that, which cost an awful lot of money. And so it created a sin system because the same word for sin in Hebrew and Aramaic is the same word for debt. So you, if you didn't have the money, you couldn't go into the temple and atone for that. And so you would remain ritually unclean. And so you were a sinner, which meant you were in debt to something. So all the language in the Bible where it says he paid our debts is actually a very financially real thing for the people that heard it in his day. They were going like, oh wow, that means that I don't have to spend all this money in the temple, that I don't have to put my family at cost because of this, that I don't have to sell a relative into indentured servitude. These were the type of things that you would have to do to get out of sin, to get out of debt. And his kingdom, he says, like, no, 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 no. It's open for everyone, and you always have a seat here, and there's no debt required. It's all been paid for you. So come on in and do that. And these lines that you have made up with this ritually unpure stuff and the sinner system and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and, like, all these different religious groups that were going on at the time, everyone was looking at each other, worshiping the same God, staring each other in the face, going like, the way you do it is wrong. <laughs> and the way you're living your entire life is wrong. Even though 99.9% .9 of what we're doing is exactly the same, that 0.1% makes you out and makes me in. That does not create a good home system. And what was incredibly unique at that time is that you had one central place that all of these people, even with all of their division, would have to go to. And so you would have this just cluster, a, a total mess of people coming into the same space on the three religious feasts where they would all have to make a pilgrimage to come into the temple in Jerusalem. They travel from all over. And you've got all of these different people that believe similarly but different enough that they hate each other and they're all having to coexist and it creates a powder keg of emotion. And so when we look at the passion account and we look at the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus is in the temple largely and around the temple at the time of a Jewish festival which would have been Passover and he was there during this powder keg moment and all of that, especially if you read the book of John, the book of John is primarily just him in this moment and it's him trying to soothe those divisions and create home. It's him flipping over those tables in the temple because he's saying like this is not how home works. Home includes everybody. 
When astronauts uh, go into space, um, there's a guy named Alexander Gerst who wrote this incredible uh, blog on the European Space Station's website. And yes, I go to the European Space Station's website. Uh, and he wrote this amazing blog about, um, about going up into space and seeing um, just the, uh, the Gaza Strip um, and, and all of the, the turmoil that's there and being able to see rockets and explosions from 248 miles up in the sky. Uh, and he said the most remarkable thing, he said, when you're up here, the problems and the divisions and the borders and the walls and all of that kind of stuff, you can't see any of that. You see a fragile planet with a tiny little atmosphere floating in hostile, cold, dark space. So what you see when you look down there is a miracle. And what you see is that we're all really just one humanity and that we all share the same fate. And this is a phenomenon that astronauts have when they go up, they begin to see the world shrink and they begin to see that, oh my gosh, all of those, all those lines we learned in geography class, all those little squiggles that say this is one thing and this is the other thing, all of those real divisions that we learned socially growing up, that those people are those people and we're these people. But when you get out there, they realize like, oh my goodness, we're all in this together and we better figure it out because we all have to solve this together. And the most remarkable thing about that is not that it's just beautiful story of an astronaut seeing something. The most remarkable thing about that and the saddest thing about that is that it took flying a grown man into space <laughs> to realize what a three-year-old can tell you right away. That yeah, we're all connected, that yeah, that person is there. Do you guys ever remember when you were a kid building a fort? Did anybody build a fort when you were a kid? I used to love, 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 love to build forts. In fact, my brother and I used to love to build forts. My brother took it a step further. We, we moved uh, seven times before I turned 14. So we were always in new homes, looking for home, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my brother and I always had each other. Um, there's like a four-year difference, but it didn't really matter because we were all each other had when we would move in those situations and stuff. But um, Brendan, uh, and I think he goes to a lot of therapy now, and I think this is probably going to come up at some point. If it hasn't already, I need to tell him, but uh, I don't know if he remembers. But Brendan used to, uh, cr he would take one of the moving boxes, uh, and he would put a blanket in there. He was a tiny little man at this point. He would put a blanket in there. He would take the TV remote in there. He would cut a slit in it, and then he would sit in that box for hours a day, <laughs> fold it open, and then just kind of change the channel through the thing. But it was his solitary like space. It was his shelter, right? Like he really felt safe in that little box. And you'd come and like I'd bring him food in the box. I mean, and looking back on it as I was writing the sermon this week, I was like. He's probably got some deep, deep wired issues I need to talk to him about. But like, like, he loved the box, right? It was like this little shelter. It was his own little fort, right? It was this temporary little structure that gave him like meaning and safety and shelter and, and just sort of like a feeling of home because we were moving so, so much. We were always on the move, always being uprooted, always starting over, always doing this stuff. And this gave him some semblance of home, of being there, right? What's amazing is that very same principle uh, is in the Bible all over the place. And for some reason, as Christians, we've totally forgotten it. But uh, one of those three pilgrim festivals um, that I was talking about where everyone would come to the temple uh, was called Sukkot, and, uh, or Sukkot as we call it in America, which is not the correct pronunciation and it sounds very strange. Um, but basically, it's the festival of booths, so the festival of the tabernacles. Um, and I talked about this a little bit on Friday, but uh, it's the festival uh, in which they, they put it in place so that people would be reminded of what it was like 
to be in the wilderness for 40 years. So a little quick history catch up, book of Exodus. So you have Genesis at the very beginning, then you have the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we have the story of Moses, and he takes the entire nation of Israel out of captivity, out of slavery, frees them uh, with God's help, and then they get to Mount Sinai, and they're supposed to go into the promised land. When they get there, they get cold feet. And basically God says, like, you're not ready yet. You're going to have to spend 40 years out here. And sorry, Moses, you're never going to see the promised land. Still not sure why he stuck Moses like that, but one day I will find out. Um, But you will not see it, 40 years. And so for 40 years they had to wander like nomads around the wilderness, surviving and surviving in temporary shelters that they would build every night and they would take down and then they would move again. And so this festival, the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles, was designed to remind them of their reliance upon God in those 40 years that their ancestors wandered in the desert. So basically, it's a fascinating holiday, and it still exists today, uh, if you're in the Jewish tradition, during this festival, which lasts almost, a week, it's like seven days, in some traditions it's eight, uh, but for seven days you build a temporary structure called a sukkah, in your backyard or on your roof, uh, which is what they would have done in ancient times. And a sukkah is an entirely fascinating structure. You're supposed to stay in the sukkah as much as you can, and especially back then, they would come to Jerusalem, and if you went there in ancient times in Jerusalem, you would see this, this festival of booths. As you entered the city, there would just be all of these makeshift structures. It probably looked like a shanty town for about a mile and a half before you got in toward the temple. And then if you were really lucky, you could build a structure like right outside the temple. And that was the coveted spot. So you had like this, this traffic jam of all of these weird makeshift structures. And the structures only had three rules that the rabbis would say you had to apply. And the first rule was that it had to be strong enough to withstand an ordinary wind. Ordinary wind, not a crazy wind. Not a, not a brief wind, but just an ordinary, everyday gust of wind. It had to be strong enough to do that. And then the second rule was that it can only have three walls and that the opening should be as big as one of the three walls. Okay? So you're getting, you're getting a picture of this? It's a flimsy thing with three walls. And then fourth, or I'm sorry, third, which is, just makes it just structurally like we, we'd want to spend the most time in there. Uh, it had to have holes in the roof so that if it rained, the rain could come through to remind you of the suffering. And then two, that you would be able to see the stars. So let's go through that again. Strong enough to withstand an ordinary wind, three walls, opening as big as one wall, and then the roof had to have holes in it so that you could see the stars. And if you break that apart and you break that down, there's something actually fundamentally beautiful in that design and in that structure and in those instructions. What does that mean? If, if it needs to be strong enough just to withstand an ordinary wind, that means it's gonna remind you of what it is to be vulnerable. It's gonna remind you that this thing is not just here to protect you and solve all of your problems, It's to remind you that you may have to rebuild, that that's part of life. That you constantly have to just hold things loosely and not fear that everything's gonna fall apart because it might. There really is no such thing as an ordinary wind if you think about it, right? We only notice the wind when it's pretty powerful. And then second, that you could see the stars, that the rain could come in, what does that mean? That's a reminder, if you can see the stars, that's a reminder that there's something bigger than yourself. It's that astronaut thing, right? So, life is vulnerable. Stay vulnerable, stay humble, 
always think about something bigger than yourself. And then third, and I think most important, the opening needs to be as big as the walls around it, which means you need to be as open as the defense mechanisms that you put up. You need to be open, you need to be thinking about something larger than yourself, and you need to be vulnerable and humble. That is how you're at home. That is how we learn to be at home. And then the other thing about the sukkah, which I think is fascinating, is it's not designed to ever be inhabited alone. You're supposed to build it and then welcome people in. That's why there's that huge opening. It's because if the stranger, the orphan, the widow came, your job was to invite them into your structure so that they could participate in the festival. That's a beautiful picture of home, and that's something Jesus would have practiced. His life would have been, they would have done those religious pilgrimages, he would have built one of these structures, he would have known this, and Jesus takes it a step further than even the structure, and he says, when he takes his disciples, in the last act that he does, he creates a home that has literally no walls, and that has seats, and that has an actual religious identity that means once you sit at it, you are family and you are at home anyway. And the primary religious act that he leaves us with, the thing that he says we have to do every time to remember him, which is communion, which is when he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he pours the wine and he says, this is my blood, the sign of a new covenant poured out for you. When he says that, he says, do that in remembrance of me when you gather. Meaning this is your home now and you're never supposed to do this alone. You're in a table. So there's no fear of like, do I fit in? Am I bringing the right things? Am I bringing my fears into this? Can I say this? Can I be intimate? Can I actually go, no, yes, you're welcome to bring all of that to the table because when we're at the table, we're reminded of something that is the most intimate thing in the whole world and that's a savior that was broken for us, right in front of us. So we're free to bring all of us to the table, all of our emotion, all of our fear, all of our love, all of our care, all of our relationship needs to be around that table. It's not about just like fitting in or figuring out the right clothes to wear or the right language to speak to do that. It's about just sitting down and eating the bread and drinking the wine. It's about feeling at home in ourselves. And I think there's one story in scripture uh, that illustrates this in the most fascinating way. Um, and it's a story of someone learning to feel at home with themselves and a story of a community that then has to actually learn to feel at home with that person. <laughs> uh, and it gets awkward. Uh, and it's the story of Legion. Um, so this is out of Mark. And Mark is a fascinating gospel. Um, if you guys want a really fascinating nerdy read, there's a book called Binding the Strong Man. Um, and it's all about Mark. It's like a political thing. But um, you can also just take me to coffee and I'll rattle it off for you. Um, it's very long. Um, but uh, I'm pulling most of the stuff that I'll say out of that book uh, in terms of this story. But um, this is the story of when Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. It says, they went across the lake to the region of Gerasene. So the lake is the Sea of Galilee, right? So we've got this big lake, 
uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to go there this year. It's not as big as I thought it was. <laughs> when you go there, you're like, you hear all these stories about Jesus going, they're like, oh, let's journey across the lake and there are storms and stuff. Um, it's not that big. You can see the other side like pretty clearly. But to them, this was a big deal. And I didn't know this. When I got there, I was like, what a wimpy lake. What, what is this? Like, I've, I've studied this lake for years. Why isn't this bigger? What I didn't understand and what we learned really quickly is that weather on this lake can change like that. So you could be all dandy and like me and just say like, the other side is no big deal. And then halfway through, a storm could come and hit and wipe you out like nothing. It's said that there are more ships on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee than any other body of water in the world. <laughs> because people like myself got cocky and just said, oh, we can make it across. And then a storm hit and wiped them out completely. So it's a dangerous lake, right? So they've just come off of a dangerous journey uh, and they're coming into a place that is foreign to them, okay? There are going to be Jewish people here, but Jesus is not from here. Jesus is from Nazareth. It's a different town. It's a different city. It's a different culture. It's a different everything, right? And again, remember how divided I said this world is. So they're coming into a world that's incredibly divided, and they're coming into a, a place that's incredibly foreign to them. They've probably heard about this place, but most of them have probably never traveled it. And remember, there are no maps there are no GPS, there's no nothing. So they're stepping out into foreign territory, not really knowing what to expect. And I will bet you anything they did not expect what's about to happen next. Uh, when Jesus got out of the boat, this is the first moment. Imagine just stepping right out of the boat. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. You've got a dude rolling out of a cemetery the minute you step out of the boat. And he's hooping and hollering, running towards you like a madman. And you're like, oh. This is what this side of town is like, right? Uh, to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. Again, great, awesome. I guess we have tomb dwellers here. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Now, there's something really important here. No one could bind him anymore. Anymore. That past tense means that this man was bound at some point. And I want to take a little modern glance and a little modern context to this. If you have someone who is psychologically unable to dwell among a, an old culture like this and they didn't understand what to do and they didn't have any medicine to fix it, there's no, there's no sort of psychotherapy, there's no nothing, what are you gonna do, right? He could hurt someone, he could harm someone. What can we do? The only option we have is that we have to bind him. It doesn't say they imprisoned him, but it says they bound him. Which imagine just if you're already unstable, how humiliating that would be because that means that you're out publicly somewhere and you're bound. So your life is spent with people walking past you and seeing that you are tied up, that you are hurt, that you're other, that you're less than, that you're a danger, that you're unimportant and the only thing that we're gonna do with you is tie you up. But this guy was so strong and unstable that they couldn't tie him up anymore, which meant that he had found a way to break free from those binds, and so they had no other choice but then to what? Get rid of him. So not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a bleak picture, right? We've got someone who's been exiled from their community. He's been kicked out. And if you were kicked out to the tombs, that basically was their way of saying, we want you to die. Like, just go out there and go to the place where we'll just, it's convenient, right? Less, less work. You'll die there, we'll bury you there. We just want you dead. Just go. 
And so he's living there. And then another really important thing with this is that if you were around the tomb, is what did I say about that dead body? And if you touched it, seven years impure, right? If you were among the tombs and you didn't go about it the right way, you would be ritually impure. And so just by being in the tombs, this man is not only exiled, not only cutting himself with stones and hurting himself and self-harm, but he's also, he's also ritually impure, which means that if anybody touched him, they're also ritually impure. He's like an impurity bomb just going off. Like no one wants to be near this person and it's only getting worse. So not strong enough to nine day to cry out. Uh, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Let's just stop right there for a second. We often look at this and a lot of other preachers will preach this preach the sermon on like demon possession or like how this person had these terrible things inside of him. What terrible thing would come and say, please don't hurt me? I like to think that a lot of this could be the demons talking, but that one right there, please don't torture me. That's coming from a person who's been deeply, deeply wounded by everyone in their life. And when he sees Jesus, his first reaction is, just please don't hurt me. I can't do that, not from you. Please don't hurt me anymore. Don't torture me. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Good thing. Uh, the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake. Again, we've got the most number of ships at the end of the lake, and now we have the most number of pigs at the bottom of the lake. Uh, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Is that the last slide there, Alex? Okay, no, well, none of it made it. Okay, and then they were drowned. Now, here's a little history lesson for you, and this is fascinating. Uh, he, what did he say his name was? He said his name was Legion. Now, Legion is the name of what a Roman unit would be called at that time. And you have to remember that all these people are under the pressure of the Roman army. The Romans have taken over. They're under captivity under this oppressive Roman government. Uh, and they would have been taken over by a legion. So a legion, a guy comes and he says, my name is Legion. And then Jesus sends that legion. Oh, and the legion, guess how many people would have been in a Roman legion? About 2,000, right? Which is how many they said was there. And here's what's even more fascinating. When they say, please don't send me out of the area, send me to something else, and they find a herd of pigs, there's something very, very interesting going on there. Jesus has this famous line uh, when he's talking to someone about being basically homeless, for lack of a better term. He says, uh, the, uh, the eagles have nests, right? But the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head, right? There are two symbols for the Roman army at this point. One symbol is an eagle, right? So he's saying like the Roman army has tons of homes. Like if you go with the system, you're gonna, you're gonna be in Cushville. Like you're gonna actually have like a, a home, right? Roman army has lots of homes. I don't have a place to lay my head. 
Now the other, the other symbol, they would have a big eagle, a bronze eagle that they would carry on a staff as like a thing of like, we're watching all y'all. And then there was another symbol that would be on their shield and that was the symbol of a boar, which looks remarkably like a pig. And so when Jesus throws this legion into these pigs, it is a deeply political move and it's gonna make everyone in the town very, very, very nervous, <laughs> right? They're gonna be like, woo if the Roman army catches wind that this guy's name was Legion and then they threw a bunch of pigs in there, we're gonna be in a whole lot of trouble, get him out immediately. So basically when the townspeople come back and they see this guy Legion and all those demons have been thrown and all those pigs, it's basically the pig herders get really upset. They go to the town, they say something is really amiss here. <laughs> you gotta come check this out. They come and they come and see the man that they bound and that they tied and that they exiled and they said you should go and die and they see him healed. They see him healed. And their first reaction to Jesus is not, oh my goodness, thank you for healing this guy. We didn't know what to do with him and we had to exile him. It was, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. And I think that the real reason that they're like, get out of here, we don't want anything to do with you is now that this person is healed, they're actually forced to reckon with him. <laughs> they're forced to have to look someone in the eye that they abused over and over and over again. And now he's of sane mind and I guarantee you he remembers every single way that they abused him. So they're mad at Jesus. They say, go. And then Jesus says something really important to the man who's now not called Legion. He's just called a man. He's given back his dignity. And the man says, hey, let me go with you. I want to follow you. I want to go and I want to proclaim this kingdom thing. I believe you. I know you're the son of God. I want to go. And Jesus says, no, you stay right here. You stay right here. It is the only instance in scripture that Jesus tells someone, no, stay, rather than come and follow me. The only instance, the only conversation he ever has where he says, stay. And I believe what he's doing is he's telling the man, you're already at home. I've given you back your dignity. You've learned to be at home with yourself. And now these people, they need to learn to be at home with you. And you're going to be a constant reminder to how you cannot abuse another human being because you never know. They might be able to bounce back. Their heart is bigger than their problems. And you can't just get rid of them by exiling them. You've now found a home. You now realize you are already at home. The villain has now become a neighbor to all of those people. He now understands himself. He understands who he is. He's a man, he's given back his dignity and now he's gonna go and live among the people that hurt him. And that is a reminder of the kingdom all the time. In our culture, we constantly send people to the tombs. <laughs> Just look at our political system. Someone makes one bad move, you're at the tombs, buddy, right? We don't forgive. We don't forget. This story is a picture of how Jesus wants to reinsert people, wants to redeem people, and then place them right back where they came from. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have to learn to forgive people like that. We have to understand that no one is damaged goods, that everyone has dignity, and that everyone has a seat at the table, and that everyone deserves a home. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for providing us with a home. And home is not a structure. <laughs> uh, home is a, 
is a grounding within ourselves uh, that you have given us. And so we find hope in you, we find home in you. And I just, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to explore what that means over the next couple weeks. And I pray over that and I pray um, over everyone in this room as we enter the holiday season that you would just uh, bless that in whatever way that looks like. Their joys, their fears, God, come alongside. Amen.